Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Welcome to Nothing Personal. It is October 15th, 2019, and I am David Sampson, and there is a lot to get to today. You want to talk about LeBron? Well, we're going to. How about some golf? Not just professionals, at least golfers. And we're also going to talk about something that I don't do a lot of, but apparently players need to, and that's called sleeping. There's all sorts of studies we're going to discuss, and I don't buy any of them. But we got to start today with what was the big story last night. I'm still talking about it today. The officiating in the NFL is making everyone crazy. Not just gamblers, not just fantasy players, but we're talking executives, the league, the commissioner, the players, and here's why. No one understands what the new rules are, not just for pass interference, but why so many more flags are being thrown. I take you back to the fourth quarter of the Detroit Lions game, Green Bay Packers driving, all of a sudden Trey Flowers, Trey Flowers as in the Lions defensive player who does not commit penalties, he gets flagged for illegal use of the hands. Anyone who was watching the game on replay saw very clearly that his hands were on the shoulder plaid toward the neck. That should not be a penalty. But of course the rule is once it's called, that is an automatic first down five yard penalty and that was game over. A perfect example of the officials being in control of an outcome. Now, I don't say the outcome of the over-under or of the point spread because we all know what happened there when Green Bay on the drive, they took a knee at the two to kick a field goal. People with Detroit and the under were celebrating. People in Green Bay with the over and the Packers, did they want the win? Did they want the win betting or the win in the standings? You'll have to ask them. From my standpoint, I was focused on officiating. What do you do if you're the league office? This is what I think about because we've got umpires in Major League Baseball. You have NBA officials. And I grew up with NBA officials like Daryl Garrettson, Earl Strom, guys with a ton of personality. Steve Javi, you may know him from watching him on TV discuss calls now, but he used to be a longtime official. And they had big personalities. And sometimes they were the game. Joey Crawford is a good example, whose brother was also a Major League umpire. He was an NBA official. People are complaining today all over the networks, all over social media, that the referees are becoming the game. But they've got it wrong. Or the story, they've got that wrong too. The referees are neither the game nor the story. The real story is the fact that the NFL has decided from above, the commissioner himself, not to make clear what it is and how it is the referees should be calling the game. Let's face it, this is not an old issue. We all remember and know years ago, pass interference. If you just flick the ball downfield and you need a score in the NFL, you can do the chuck and duck, pray for the flag. We've all seen it because pass interference is a point of the spot at the point of foul. So if you throw it in the end zone and get a pass interference, all of a sudden you're first and goal at the one if it were in the end zone. To me, that's where they have to start. 
pass interference should not be a reward to the offense down at the point of foul. In my opinion, it's a 10-yard penalty automatic first down because we are giving officials too big an opportunity to actually affect and impact the outcome of a game. We also need to get word to the officials what kind of calls need to be made and when replay is going to be used. Because if you're not going to use replay at the end of a game like the Lions-Packers game, then I'm not sure what replay is for. Why are you going under the hood if you simply are not doing it to actually impact the outcome of the game? When I was a part of uh, developing instant replay uh, in baseball, John Sherholt spearheaded it, but I was on a committee where we really looked at replay and, and how instant replay would work. We didn't want to delay the game, but we had an, the overarching goal of instant replay in MLB was one thing, get the call right. That was it. So I ask you, NFL, when you are deciding what you're going to do with your replay and you are thinking about in your mind how you are going to impact the game and changes you're going to make, Find out what your number one goal is, because to me, the number one goal should be get the call right and let the players decide the outcome of the game. There will be some other issues that come up when you do it in baseball. You've seen it. The slide over second base, when the foot comes off the bag by a millimeter, it drove me crazy as an executive for all those years. We had to teach our players a new way to slide because they grew up, and in the minor leagues, they were taught that if you're away from the base by an inch, you're okay, but with replay, you're not. So it actually impacts everything you do down through the minor leagues. The NFL has a problem on its hands. They can't go to robot umps, which is something MLB's looking at. Why? Why would MLB want robot umps? I've been thinking a lot about this, and the reason's clear. They want to take error and chance away. They want to take any likelihood of individuals who can impact a game and get a call wrong. I personally love the robot ump. It works in tennis. Anytime you have an issue on the line, it doesn't delay the game. And we've got that technology that we could use in baseball for fair or foul, for strike zone. But first, we have to get agreement with the union on what the strike zone is. Tons of layers to this issue. We are going to get into much more detail as the season progresses. But bring me a robot ump get the call right, don't impact the game, and you had me at hello. But that wasn't the only thing that got me going last night, I'll tell you. the uh, LeBron, he did it. R wait for it. Ah, LeBron finally spoke about China. The most influential voice in athletics was silent. He was in Shanghai, in China, and he had not said one word until yesterday when he said the following. We, we all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen um, when you're not thinking about others and only, you're only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe, uh, I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl, um, with Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on, on, on the situation at hand and, um, and he spoke. And uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, uh, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we, what we tweet and we say and what we do, even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be uh, a lot of negative that comes with that. So many people could have been harmed financially. That's you, LeBron, right? Is that what you're talking about? 
that you would have been harmed financially? And then he said physically. Do you mean the protesters in Hong Kong who have been harmed physically? And that had something to do with Daryl Morey's tweets? LeBron, you had two weeks to figure out what to say. You met with your Nike officials. You met with your agent. You met with your attorneys. Supposedly, you met with your PR guys. And you came up with that? That? Well, it wasn't good enough because you went into DEFCON 3 and you started tweeting. And as you know, I can tell you from experience, tweeting when you're trying to figure out an issue doesn't always work. But LeBron got it right, didn't he? Because here's tweet number one. Let me clear up the confusion. What confusion? He didn't mention what confusion. If I hadn't seen the soundbite, I wouldn't know. I do not believe there was any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. Really? Okay. I'm not discussing the substance. LeBron, what are you discussing? Others can talk about that. I'm not discussing the substance. So that tweet wasn't well-received. Why would it be well-received? Because what he was discussing was the fact that he was in line to lose millions and millions and maybe billions of dollars. And we're not even talking about Space Jam dose. But that tweet wasn't enough. So let's go to the second one. This will clear it up, I guarantee it. My team and this league just went through a difficult week. Hold on, I'm crying. I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement can do to others, and I believe nobody stopped and considered what would happen. Could have waited a week to send it. We gotta break that down for everyone. My team and the league just went through a difficult week. Excuse me. I'm sorry, LeBron, that you had such a bad week. But I can only tell you that maybe the people in Hong Kong have had a worse one than you. So why don't we just be careful? Because I'll promise to be careful if you promise to be careful. I'll promise to meet my PR guys if you promise to meet your PR guys. But LeBron, way more people are listening to you. I don't know about ratio or not ratio, likes or comments. What I do know is you have reach. You have say. You have skin in the game. You have influence. Is it right for an athlete to have that amount of influence? Wait to see. But it doesn't matter because you have it. Therefore, you have to use it wisely. The NBA China situation is still evolving. There are still myriad issues that need to be dealt with, and they all involve money. So the best thing to do if you're a player is to take the talking points that should have been delivered by Adam Silver to the players for them to disseminate to their social media craving, loving fans around the world. But Adam Silver met with the teams in Shanghai, the Lakers and the Nets, and it turns out it was not a well-planned meeting. They didn't get anything accomplished other than to agree that there was a problem. Really? There's a problem because of Daryl Morey's tweets? Yeah, there is. Because we've got politicians talking about it. We've got players talking about it. We've got people who don't even watch the NBA talking about it. And you've got, it's a bipartisan, across-aisle issue that freedom of speech and freedom of expression matter. So LeBron, don't tell me there's a time for freedom of speech and expression. Just tell me that you have business with Nike and you want to be very careful what's said to understand the ramifications. I'm okay with that. That's where you should have started. That's where you should have finished. Whew. God, that got me worked up. Can you imagine a tweet getting people worked up? I can't. <laughs> Although I was worked up about a non-tweet, something happened that I've never seen before because I've never, I'm not a golfer. I golfed with uh, Jeff Conine and I and a few others for his 50th birthday, went to Scotland, 
and I had never golfed really before. I'd been in golf tournaments just for charity, but I would not really golf. So I had to buy golf clubs and I had to buy golf clothes. I looked like a real golfer. Um, I actually birdied the 18th at the old course in St. Andrews. I kept the ball. It was real. I didn't even use my eraser. Uh, and then I retired. I haven't played around since. But golf was always an issue for me when I was running the Marlins because players and executives love to golf. And it drove me crazy that our team plane would get delayed because they'd be loading golf clubs onto the team plane. I never understood why players on their day off would want to play golf or why executives on their day off would want to play golf when I could sleep, watch movies, do work or shop or hang out. Um, but I get it. It's a hobby. So people do it. But I worry about the timing. So let's review what happened yesterday. It's announced by the manager of the Cardinals, who had just lost two games at home, this is prior to game three of the National League Championship Series, that the pitching coach, Mike Maddox, who is brothers of Greg Maddox, who was an all-star pitcher, Hall of Fame pitcher for the Braves, who was an amazing golfer, and is, I assume, Mike Maddox went golfing with the GM. Now, of course, if you go with your boss, you can do anything. So I don't blame Mike Maddox for pit, for going golfing on the off day before game three of the NLCS because his boss was there. But while he was golfing, he got two holes in one. Now that's exciting, right? It was exciting enough that Mike Schultz announced that Maddox got two holes in one. It was reported that there's a one in 67 million chance of getting two holes in one. Well, I would like to report to all of you that there's now a one in 67 million chance that the Cardinals go to the World Series. So which is more important? If I'm Mike Maddox and I know that I have Jack Flaherty going in a must-win game three, I'm not golfing. I'm sorry, Mike. I am making sure that I've got a game plan in place because I know that if I give up one run, I'm going to lose. And God darn hitting coach better not be golfing, I'll tell you that, when the fact is they couldn't score in the NLCS. I didn't see a report of that. But if I'm the president of baseball ops for the St. Louis Cardinals, or I'm the pitching coach, or anyone on a team down 2-0, and it were my people going golfing, I would be livid. I don't care about a hole-in-one. I don't want a hole-in-one. I want to make sure that we have a chance to win a game. So wouldn't you know it, he goes golfing. <laughs> Guess what happened? Yeah, Jack Flaherty couldn't get it done, and neither could the offense, and the Cardinals ended up losing the game. They are now down three to zero. What does that actually mean? Well, for starters, it means the Nats are going to the World Series. For finishers, it means that we are learning that pitching and defense still matter. Because guess what the Cardinals didn't have? Marcelo Zuna, one of my favorite players, made a terrible defensive miscue and a base running miscue. Fundamentals that we teach and learn and practice starting in spring training all through the season. It's always been frustrating to me when players don't pay attention to drills in spring training because they want to go golfing, and they want to get done with their workouts. And then during the season, they don't want to take infield because they're tired, because they don't get enough sleep. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. So Marcelo Zuna makes these mistakes in the NLCS. Jack Flaherty did not pitch like the ace that he has been, which is to be expected. There's going to be regression. And what happens is they lose a game. And as I said yesterday, game three, when you're down 2 nothing in a series, is like a game seven. And the Cardinals did not operate with that level of urgency at all. And then Mike Schultz did a press conference afterwards saying, don't count us out, one game at a time. There's a there's a handbook. I don't know if you know this. A um, 
There's a handbook that we have of cliches that we use in PR when you're with a team. When you lose a game, when you win a game, when you're on a losing streak or a winning streak, it's called the book of cliches. The best cliche when you're down 3-0 is, and we're going to hear more cliches later from, from teams which have been eliminated, but the cliches that Schilt used were, hey, we're not out of it, one game at a time, we're going to go get them one win at a time. And so I smiled thinking, you're a day late and a dollar short on that. Now, am I bitter because I picked the cards in my Grand Slam pick of the day yesterday? Yes, I am. Am I bitter that they didn't improve their approach to Steven Strasburg, having watched him pitch and having seen what he's done in the postseason? Am I bitter that they didn't try to ambush him the way they should have early in the count? Am I bitter that the Nationals are going to the World Series? No, not about that. Because then I can say that an organization I work for went to the World Series in addition to the Marlins, the Expos. I wonder how that would go over if I start taking credit for the Expos going to the World Series. No, I'm definitely not going to do that. So the NLCS, we are in a very interesting situation where it's over. MLB right now is rooting so hard for the Cardinals tonight. That's why I'm taking them as my pick. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later in the show. But they don't like sweeps in the NLCS from a rating standpoint, from a revenue standpoint. You have to go five, six or seven games is ideal. Five games is minimum, and a four-game sweep is a disaster. So I'm looking for umpires to get involved, MLB to get involved, the Cardinals to step up, and there'll be a game five. Hudson over our man, Patrick Corbin. So speaking of the National League, what happens after you lose, and this is also part of the, the annual ritual for me every year of my 18 years, except for one, when we didn't lose the last game we played. Uh, well, I guess you could win the last game of the regular season. I never really cared much for the last game of the regular season because if I lost, I'd forget about it. And if I won, I felt like a waste because you're winning a game and you're not going into the playoffs, so who cares? But we'd always tell the players, hey, let's go off and on a good note. Well, half the players have their bags packed. So the Dodgers get eliminated from the division series, so you have to do a press conference. That's normal. Andrew Friedman is the president of baseball operations. He's the one who would do a press conference. Now, he would normally do it with Stan Kasten, the president of the team, except Stan Kasten was nowhere to be found. I wonder why that is. That's because I'm not so sure there's a lot of love there. So Andrew Friedman has his contract that needs to be renewed. Andrew Friedman signed a $35 million five-year contract. I believe it was for more. The report was 35 over seven. Frankly, it doesn't matter. Seven million a year, 10 million a year. Who's counting? I'm not counting. But what I am telling you is he's resigning. He's bringing Dave Roberts back. But what I loved most about his press conference are some of the things he said. So what I'd like to do is see if we can roll just a little bit of sound from Andrew Friedman. I can't remember being around a group um, that was as committed to doing everything that they could to win a World Series. Obviously, we did not do that. Um, but from spring training into the season, throughout the season, it was a singular focus for virtually everybody in our clubhouse. It's as good of a group as I've ever been around, but we share in that disappointment, frustration. Um, it was you know, heart-wrenching in a lot of ways, and I think it's something for us that as we sit here today and as we look forward to the offseason, we have to focus on things that are constructive, things that will help us uh, in our quest to, you know, 
deliver a World Series championship to Los Angeles. Andrew, you're my man, but let me just ask you this. If you're listening, watching, or anyone you know is listening or watching, it's the singular focus, wait for it, for virtually everyone to win the World Series. I would like you right now to find out who it is that stops you from saying everyone. Who's the virtual person? Who is it where the World Series is not the singular focus? And why is it that you said the same thing and I've said the same thing every year? Of course, our goal is to win the World Series every year and we didn't accomplish it. That's page four of the postseason interview playbook. But you never say it's the singular focus for virtually everyone because by definition, if you don't fire someone or trade someone or let someone go, then you're not telling us who the person is or you don't know who the person is. But Andrew, you do know who the person is. You know very well why you're not winning 11 games in uh in October and you are gonna do something about it. The first thing you're gonna do is pray to God. I'm not sure that God has time to care about Kenley Jansen, but pray to God that he opts out of his contract. If that happens, you will have a, a far better chance. And I'm sorry you had to pay him so much because that was my fault. We offered Kenley Jansen, we were with the Marlins, we offered Kenley Jansen and Aroldis Chapman a huge contract because why not make the Yankees and Dodgers pay more? We knew the Yankees and Dodgers were gonna retain Jansen and Chapman, so why not offer them money? And because that's the Dodgers who use money as a, you know, in their bully pulpit. We said, hey, make the Dodgers pay up for Kenley. And of course, having the Yankees payroll go up, go up. Who doesn't want that? The, the, uh, the evil empire of the Yankees. So that was easy for us to do. Do I, am I glad we didn't get Chapman and Jansen or Jansen? Well, they would have matched up maybe very well with Wei and Chen and we would have had a really good starter and a really good bullpen. And maybe that's why the Marlins didn't make it to the playoffs in my final year or two, although I doubt it. Andrew, keep working hard because uh, you do need to win those 11 games. You're gonna get a new contract, but continuing to fail in the postseason, it will have a deleterious impact on your legacy. And look at your friend, Theo. Theo's got the two rings, you're still at zero, and I know you're chasing Theo. We've talked about it, don't deny it, you're chasing him. That was not the uh, the only soundbite that uh, I really thought about yesterday. Uh, sometimes what do you do when you've got a player? This happened several times to me. When you've got a player who says something, you just want to release him. And what do you do when he's a good player versus a bad player? Well, you hope that only the bad players say things that are release worthy. Seinfeld reference for those paying attention at home. If not Google worthy Seinfeld, you'll get there. You prefer to have a bad player do it because then you have an excuse to release them. When a good player says something, you tend to have a talking to. So I'm not saying we have different rules for different levels of players, except there's different rules for different levels of players. The Philadelphia Eagles had a situation where they were able to breathe a sigh of relief. Zach Brown got released by the Philadelphia Eagles after he had given some sound saying that Kirk Cousins was the main issue with the Minnesota Vikings offense. Of course, Kirk Cousins then went out and shoved it the following day or two days later. And then Brown was asked about Kirk Cousins after the game. Well, let's hear what he said. Do you wish maybe you didn't say what you said about Cousins? I'm here to talk about the game. No about that. Well, that was a big part of it. Cousins, uh... Any other questions besides about Kirk Cousins? How do you think he played today? He did a great job today. He played good. You know, that's awesome. I can't break that. Hey, Zach, I do have another question, and it's not about Kirk Cousins. Um, What team are you going to play for next? Because clean out your locker, get some tape in a box, you've been released. 
Now, was he released only because of the comments? Probably not because he was not having a good season. But when you're in the front office, you are waiting for your PR guy. You give them a list of players who you're looking, you're hoping they step out of line, hoping they do something that just sort of is the straw that breaks the camel's back. You get the call. Oh, we got a live one, David. Yeah, Zach Brown, you should hear what he just said. Ding dong, the witch is dead. See you later, Zach. On to the next team. If I were you, I'd play better and talk less and maybe go see Hamilton. That's it for Zach Brown. Well, if you're listening to this and watching, I'm thankful, but there is something else you could be doing today, but I'm gonna catch you up on it and I'm gonna teach you what I know and it's not gonna be a long segment, but there's a new football league coming. It's called the XFL. Now you've heard about it. It's being run by Vince McMahon. Now it's not the old XFL from 2001, I think it was. And do you know what X stands for? It's not extreme, it's not exciting, it's not existential, it's not X-rated, it's not an X-ray. Actually, Oliver Luck, who is the commissioner, as in Andrew Luck's dad, I wonder whether Andrew, come to think of it, is actually working with Oliver. Maybe Andrew retired to work with his dad, Oliver, on the new XFL. But anyway, Oliver Luck, an accomplished guy, a West Virginia grad, who I think was in the same class as our producer, Matthew Coca said that X stands for nothing. So I guess it just marks the spot. So they had a draft today, and I was trying to watch the draft and pay attention to certain things that were going on until I realized that it's not really a normal draft. So let me tell you what they did and why there's a chance the XFL, a chance that it may work. The first thing they did is they gave a quarterback to each of the eight teams. They did not uh, offer up for draft. They were assigned, literally. So there's a quarterback who goes to a team, then the next quarterback, next quarterback. So every team has a quarterback. There's eight teams in the league total. Then they do a draft, and they do it really by position. You're drafting offense. You're drafting defense. And there's 71 players on the team. They each make about $55,000. You can pay some players a little more if they have some NFL experience. So, for example, Cardell Jones was the first pick. You remember Cardell Jones, I do. He's the national champion for Ohio State. I know that because I'm a Badger, and it made me crazy when he when they win. Anything that anyone does in the Big Ten that's good, I have schadenfreude for, so I'm rooting against them completely. And he's the, uh, he's the famous one for one of the great quotes, not of all time, it's not even on Mount Rushmore, it's, but given all of the pay-to-play issues that are going on, he just, he flat out just said it. Cardell Jones said, I didn't come here to play school. <laughs> No, he did not. He did not come here to play school, folks. I think it's pretty clear. He <coughs> Hold on, I'm hitting cough button. Did that work? I came here to play football, he should have said, and football he did, except he couldn't quite make it in the NFL, so he's now going to be in the XFL. Now, why could the XFL actually succeed where the Alliance of American Football, you remember that from early 2019, they started, they played for six weeks and then folded before they even played a full season, why did why do leagues fold? Obviously, one reason only. It's called money. So why does the XFL have a chance? Because they did two things to actually increase their chances. Number one, they have Vince McMahon, who sold about $250 million of WWE stock to ostensibly put it into the XFL. So they do have some money. They have some capital. But they also have a good TV deal. They did a deal with ESPN 
the Disney company, ESPN slash ABC. You have to keep track. I don't have a playbook for everyone if you're watching or listening, but who owns who, it's quite complicated. But suffice it to say, Disney, ESPN, ABC, and then Fox as well is a TV partner. So when you actually are a TV partner and you have an opportunity to start a league, that's what you need first. Before you have ticket buyers, before you have head coaches, before you have a marketing plan, you need TV money. It's the number one revenue driver and the XFL was able to get it. Great step number one. But how did he succeed in getting a TV deal? Because part of the deal, Vince McMahon with WWE, is that SmackDown went to Fox. Do you think that's a coincidence that the WWE SmackDown and them buying the rights to the XFL? Um, no, they are totally interrelated. But who cares? I want another football league and I want it to succeed. So they have some name head coaches. They've got eight teams in, in cities from Tampa Bay to Dallas. But what I like is they're trying to come up with new rules and new thing, new ideas to make the games go faster. I'm not exactly sure what they are because they haven't announced them other than the rules so far are the same as the NFL. So I, it's not going to be like a gimmicky league, which is maybe what people thought the old XFL was. It's not going to be like the lingerie league. It's going to be actual football, we suspect. So wait to see whether or not the XFL works, but it does have two pillars that matter. If you didn't watch the draft, I'd like to tell you who was drafted, but it would take the entire show to go through every position, every player. And it's players, if you're a college football fan, you've heard of mostly, but it's guys who obviously couldn't make it to the NFL. It's going to end up like a minor league league, but with major league revenue, that's the goal for Vince McMahon. I do wish him luck. We'll see. I read a great article last night while I wasn't sleeping because uh, I don't sleep, but there's an article that came out, a big report, I think it was on uh, on ESPN, and it was about athletes and sleep. One of my favorite articles I've read in a very long time, it was this very long, detailed article talking about how NBA players have such terrible sleep deprivation that it's ruining their lives. It could be causing cancer later in life. It's hurting their ability to perform on the field, to perform off the field. Their life, quality of life, everything's bad. So they're bringing in scientists and they're teaching the players how to sleep and they're teaching players how to measure their sleep and they're measuring their brain waves while they're sleeping. There are some baseball teams that are doing this. I kid you not, this was offered to me with the Marlins. I turned it down. Two teams have said yes and I was a hard no. A company wanted us to pay them. They were gonna send a machine home with the players. The players would have to sleep with the machine. Their significant others were super excited about that, right? Like for those of you who sleep with someone who has the apnea machine, right? It bubbles and it covers their mouth. I'm sure you're going to say you're good with it, but you'd be lying. So the players would have to sleep with this machine that measures their brain waves and it measures their REM sleep. And then the trainers would get the information the next day and go to the manager and say, hey, you know, Marcelo Zuna didn't get a good night's sleep last night. He can't be in the lineup today. Yeah. So my opinion of that is forget it. Players have opportunity to get sleep. Let's just talk about the way they travel. It's not first class travel, it's charter travel. And NBA players, they don't sit in regular seats, they are bigger seats with extra legroom. You know when you go at JetBlue, you know, do you want the extra legroom seats? Like double that, triple that, quadruple that. It's There's no David Sampson's. I guess there was a Spud Webb 
And uh, I, I get he was 5'7", two inches taller than I am. Muggsy Bogues was shorter than I am and could dunk, which always made me jealous. So there's some short guys, but the majority of NBA players, uh, major league players are mostly larger adults, not as large as Stanton and Judge, and not as small as Altuve, who is actually my size. I've met him. They list him at 5'6". That's always bothered me. He's not 5'6". He's exactly what I am, 5'5". Five, five. I'm really 5'4 and 3 quarters, but I'm really 5'5". Five, five. So... They're saying that if you don't sleep right, you're not going to play right. So the players have to get approximately seven to nine hours of sleep. Well, I traveled with the team for 18 years. And I can tell you one thing about players when they travel. Um, they're still getting seven to nine hours, but it may not be the seven to nine hours that you're getting. Because when we pull into a city at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or 12 a.m., most players are actually going out. And they're coming back as the early morning golfers are going to golf. That is not abnormal. What does happen, though, is there are certain cities that are known as recovery cities. Guess what the, one of the recovery cities is? St. Louis. Players are famous for going to St. Louis to catch up on their sleep because there's not much to do there. Here's a city that's not a recovery city. Miami. Montreal. Coincidence? I don't think so. New York. That's where you go hard, and that's why players, when they get the schedule, this is true, they look at the schedule, and they actually plan out when their rest and recovery cities are going to be. Now, of course, people could say to me, well, players can find fun and trouble wherever they are, and that's true, but I'm telling you that what players do is they actually choose cities where they're going to try to recover, and that's not science. That is not people putting machines on their ears and their heart and their temples trying to measure their sleep. That's players knowing their bodies. I never cared when players would walk into the clubhouse and take a nap. I didn't care when players would sleep on the team plane and then go out till five in the morning. I only cared when a player did that and didn't perform. My, uh, I mean, this reminds me, you know, pitchers pitch every five days, right? Can't you not go out the night before you pitch? Yeah, I'm talking to you, Ricky Nolasco. Do you remember Ricky Nolasco in Milwaukee of all cities when I caught you at like four in the morning getting a slice of pizza when you know why you're eating pizza at 4 a.m. I know why you're eating pizza at 4 a.m. I was eating pizza at 4 a.m. And then you ran out of the back door of the store, the pizza place, thinking I didn't see you. I know you remember that because you and I laughed about it. But you know what sucked, Ricky? You got shelled the next day. So for me, if you're a player, just get your sleep before you're going to play. Do what you're going to do. But don't then commission studies and make front offices spend all this money just to discover the fact that you should be getting more sleep. All of us need more sleep. Just because you're not sleeping the prescribed hours and they don't count airplane sleep as sleep, well, for those of us who travel, if you don't count airplane sleep as sleep, then practically you don't sleep at all. So I'm ignoring that fact as well. Go check the article out. It's interesting, but not to me. As an insider in the game, I can tell you, that players get their sleep when they choose to, and I wish that they chose different times. I was watching on uh, TV something last night because I had time, again, Sunday night, was the finale to an unbelievable TV show called Succession. If you haven't watched it, get out there and watch it, and here's why. It's about a media conglomerate family, a father, played by Brian Cox, his name is Logan Roy, and his kids, many of whom work for him, and all of whom want to succeed him in running the company. Now, it is the single most dysfunctional family I've ever seen, 
and I know families that put the D in dysfunctional, present company included. That said, this family is a train wreck. They are after each other. They lie, cheat, and steal. This is big money, big business. People claim it's about the Murdoch family, but it's not. This this family can't be real, the things that go on. It is riveting TV. The season two finale was on HBO last night, and I was able to watch it after I watched the Cardinal game, the NLCS game three. The Cardinals lost. I lost my pick. So instead of drowning my sorrows and sleeping, I watched the last episode of Succession. It is not too late for you to start, but go back to the beginning of season one and learn what it is that families do when they run a business. Now, there are people who say that there's no family businesses in sports. Um, most of them are. The Steinbrenners. I think it's possible that it may be the Steinbrenner family because you had George Steinbrenner as the big owner, and then you had the uh, his son, Hal and Hank, who was going to take over when George died. They didn't know. Then there was a son-in-law who was going to be involved, and then he got moved out. I think that could have been after he got arrested for something. And then it started with Hank and then moved to Hal, and now it's Hal. That's not the TV show, but you've got the Wilpons in New, in, the, in, New, in New York. You've got the Dolans in Cleveland. You had the Polads in Minnesota. I could go on and on. So family business is a real thing in sports. It's a real thing in media. And if you're looking at a train wreck, you know you can't turn away from it, right? It's fairly obvious to me why. Because you have an opportunity to picture your own team. And so I know in New York, everyone's calling for the Wilpons to sell. But they're not going to sell because once Fred Wilpon's done with the team, he has a successor. The successor is Jeff Wilpon, his son, who's the chief operating officer. And in succession, you've got two sons as co-chief operating officers. Spoiler alert, sort of, it's hard to run a business with two co-COOs. And in Cleveland, they had a great run, didn't make the playoffs this year. That's an example where the son has taken over total control of that team. And you've got it in other sports as well, certainly in basketball with Jerry Reinsdorf and the Bulls. His son, Michael Reinsdorf, is running that team, and that is part of a succession plan. I mean, I could go on way more longer than this podcast is going to last because it's it's the rule, not the exception. So they made a TV show on HBO about what it would like to make dysfunction even greater, and boy, boy, did they ever succeed. Took this long to talk about the ALCS. You know, the Yankees-Astros is the series that we were all waiting for. And we thought to ourselves, this is probably going to go seven. We've got great pitching with the Astros. We've got a great offense with the Yankees. And it turns out what we've talked about is that pitching is going to win games. We talked about that with the Nats rotation. And Verlander was outstanding for the Astros, but he did not really impact the game to win. Carlos Correa and his balky back recovered well enough to hit the game-winning and walk-off home run, first by a shortstop in many, many years. Uh, thank you, Alex Gonzalez. Game four, walk-off home run. I appreciate you. I just saw Alex Gonzalez, the former shortstop for the Marlins. Not the shortstop for the Cubs by the same name, but our shortstop. So this ALCS is fascinating. You've got a game today that's going on, and this is a critical game, more so for Houston, and here's why. You've got Garrett Cole pitching. When you're Garrett Cole and you're the Houston Astros, that's a must-win game. So there's certain games in a series where, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. It's a bonus if you win. It's not critical if you lose. The Yankees look at this game three as, hey, bonus game. If we can beat Cole, we are in a super great position up to one in the series, having gotten rid of Verlander and Cole. And if they lose tonight, they say, hey, 
we lost tonight, not the end of the world. But if you're the Astros, you have to have the diff a different outlook. You have to say, we cannot lose this game. It's not like a game seven like the Cardinals face when you're down 3-0. And frankly, when they were down 2-0, I called it a game seven. It's not that critical. But in terms of who walks away from today's game, it's more important for the Astros to win than it is for the Yankees to win. However, the other big story going on is what's going to happen with the weather tomorrow. And the weather tomorrow is looking like rain. And it's looking like 100% rain in the Bronx. So here's what happens during the regular season. You have your team. So in Miami, I would be in charge of whether there be a rain delay, rain out. I would work with the grounds crew back when I was without a roof. I did have a rain delay in a retractable roof facility. I'll talk about that another time. How do you get a rain delay? I'm going to talk about it right now because I've got to. I had a rain delay on opening day of a season because the roof was open and I was on my phone. This is an absolute true story. And there was an app and I was following the weather on an app and I, I we were fine. The cell was moving away from Marlins Park. All of a sudden it starts raining in the park out of nowhere. This, this cell just came up out of nowhere and we... We had to get the tarp. We had never practiced with the tarp. We had built this ballpark. We had never practiced how to put the tarp out because why would you need a tarp? You have a roof. And so we had a rain delay, an actual rain delay. I had to hold a press conference during the game of opening day because we had a rain delay. The owner called me from sitting next to the dugout. I was up in the box. He called me down and I don't think I can swear, but I'm going to give you the bleep. What the F is going on? We've got an effing, MFing roof. That was the quote. And uh, I shrugged. I did the Bud Steelig All-Star Game shrug. It's a tie. It's a tie. I said it's a, it's a rain delay. Yankee Stadium, no such luck. What, but in the playoffs, my point is that the team is not in control of the rain delay or when to call the game. It is all Major League Baseball. So the commissioner is involved. He's got Joe Torre involved, who works for him. He's got Dan Hallam involved, who is the deputy commissioner, and Tony Petiti, who's another deputy commissioner, because they're working with their TV partners, and they're working with the league and the TV partners and the cities, because you have to make sure if you're going to a city early or staying in the city an extra day, you have to make sure that the teams can stay in their hotels. You have to make sure their charter planes are available the following day. There's some logistical things, but the biggest issue when you're in the postseason, is that if you can call a rain delay as early as possible, there's a benefit to that. I did not have that luck in game three of the 2003 World Series at Pro Player. There was a rain delay while while game three was going on, and the commissioner at the time, I don't know why I didn't put this in his book, but he should have, uh, Bud Selig called me down. He, uh, he called me over to him. He was watching the game from behind the plate, and it was raining, and there was a delay, and he calls me over, and in this stern, angry voice, he said to me, when is it going to stop raining? And I'm in the middle of watching a World Series game for my team, and I looked at him, and I said, how do I know when it's going to stop raining? Like, what am I? What am I, God? And I actually said that to him, and he laughed, except he was so angry. It turns out that he has a personal weatherman who he would use to give him guidance, and he told us, we have to get a weatherman. So there's a great history of stories with weather. Look for this to happen. I believe that game four is going to be called. This is part of my wait to see segment. We're gonna keep track. We talked about Tua in yesterday's episode. Will you need to go 0 for 16 to get him? Today, 
I'm wait to see. This is a quicker turnaround. MLB will postpone game four, and they're going to do it sooner rather than later. What an advantage that will be for the Astros, because the Yankees bullpen will have to play four games in a row, and their starters don't go as deep. Their bullpens, while getting an extra day of rest, and Tanaka gets to pitch instead of a bullpen day if you're the Yankees, I still think the benefit is far greater for the Houston Astros. Wait to see what happens. It's going to be interesting. I also end with a pick, and what I want to do is keep track of my picks, and uh, I lost yesterday with the Cardinals. Now, the good news is, why do I think the Cardinals are going to win today? Because I'm going to keep picking the damn Cardinals until they win for me, because that's how stubborn I am. I'm also getting 141, so they're a big-time dog. The odds are that Corbin is definitely going to close them out. In the history of seven-game series, when a team is up 3-0, they're going to close them out about 80% of the time. However, I don't think the Cardinals are going to wilt. I actually believe there's an opportunity for them to win this game and maybe, maybe, maybe get this series back to Washington. I'm not saying that's the way to see, not even close. But as far as tonight's concerned, that is definitely my pick of the night. Look for Dakota Hudson to have a good game. And for Patrick Corbin to get touched up a bit because he's been pitching out of the bullpen and not starting the last week or so. So that's the latest episode of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. We are here every single day for your pleasure. We're going to talk about trending sports stories. We're going to take you inside what's really going on, play some good sound, have some fun, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us every single day. And remember, it's just business. It's nothing personal.